HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Samuel Adams, Brewing the American Dream. Hear stories from their inspiring entrepreneurs on Let's Talk About Food, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Lee, co-founder of IMI, the better-for-you Asian-American food brand that invented the world's first low-carb, high-protein, and 100% plant-based instant ramen. IMI is the result of over 200 recipe trials, 4,000 tasters, and two friends named Kevin, and can be found on immieats.com. You can also find it at Whole Foods and the Fresh Market starting in mid-September. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really, really excited you're here. We've been trying to get this going for a while, and um, I don't know what. How did it become like? It's like, <laughs> it's like almost Christmas. I feel it. I mean, I know it's yeah. only July, but seriously, man, time. I know. Is crazy. I don't even recall um, how we were connected originally, but I know um, it took a while because I I also recently moved to New York about four months ago, and. I think for a while we were considering, should we do this in person? And anyways, oh, I'm really yeah. happy that we got to do this. Well, you definitely need to come over and we need to make noodles together because oh, we be did amazing. do a partnership we um, did. last year, I think, with our gingery miso. And yes. um, yeah, I mean, we're huge fans over here. So even just to hang out. And um, vice versa. That was oh, yay. <laughs> um, Okay. So on to you and your company. So you are a co-founder with another Kevin, mm-hmm. um, and I know that you guys met when you were working at a company called Kabam, Correct, um, yeah. and that sounds very techy. And I think <laughs> you're a techy person. That's so funny. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about you know what you guys were doing, how you met. I know that um, there was some shared love of noodles, um, yes. but yeah, tell me a little bit about you know you and and the other Kevin and how it came to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my co-founder and I, we did meet in the tech industry. It's, uh, it's not something we've, we've publicly talked about too much, but um, the past decade we spent together in various roles um, out in San Francisco. And we actually bonded because in our first role together, actually our only role as co-workers, uh, we were working at this mobile gaming company together and every day for breakfast, we'd go get noodles for breakfast, which mm-hmm. the other product managers thought was kind of strange. But, you know, <laughs> I think we grew up in Asian food families. And in Asia, it's very common to go get noodles for breakfast. Mm-hmm. So it was over these bowls that we started getting to know each other as friends and just shared a little bit more about our family histories. And we both realized we came from pretty similar backgrounds. So my grandparents are produce farmers in Taiwan. They grow something called a rose apple. And a lot of my childhood summers and winters were with them 
uh, working in the fields, just picking, stemming, packaging the fruit. Um, and it was a lot of fun, but uh, definitely very different from what I'm doing today. But it was a lot of good exposure to the food industry, at least at the producer level. And my co-founder, Kei Chan, his grandmother sold egg noodles out of a hawker stall in Thailand, which is where he used to spend a lot of his childhood helping her clean the stall, serve the noodles. Right. And later when his dad immigrated to the United States, his dad ended up operating a Thai supermarket as well as then later running a Thai restaurant serving noodles, uh, where Kei Chan helped quite a bit as well. So we both did grow up kind of in, you know, in the presence of food, but mm -hmm. um, our parents really immigrated here to the U.S. so that we wouldn't work in the food industry like our families. And ironically, yeah. we came back full circle. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, obviously totally different background. Uh, you know, I have a totally different background, but I remember when I told sort of the elder women in my family that I was opening a cooking school, um, they were very upset. And they, I mean, they had felt like they had worked really hard in their own ways to make it so that, you know, women didn't have to cook and that they had sort of now, I was somehow setting civilization <laughs> backward. Um, I mean, obviously totally different, but I can imagine that, you know, in that situation, you're leaving a tech job um, or thinking about it or, you know, leaving an industry that's safer and more secure and perhaps more lucrative um, and making a bet on a noodle company might have scared them a little bit. Um, was there, yeah. was there any pushback? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, first off, I'm, I'm so sorry you had to experience that as well, but I, I really hope that, you know, your family is, is super proud of you now. I think just Aww. watching what you've built Thank and you. you've done an incredible job and I've read about yeah. the circumstances. And so, um, you know, I, I think very, perhaps not, obviously not in the same vein, but definitely there were, there was pushback from both of our families. Um, I know the first time I told my parents, they were, they were pretty shocked, uh, you know, mm -hmm. to, to, like you said, to go from the tech industry to telling them, Hey, you know, I want to try to reinvent instant ramen. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing my parents did was, you know, we, it was kind of a half supportive, half criticism. They, they took me to an Asian supermarket and we walked down the, the instant ramen aisle and in one way it was kind of like a, Hey, you know, they wanted to help me take a look at the comp competitive set, mm. which obviously I had already done. <laughs> but right. in, in another way, it was this passive aggressive. Uh, look my at mom, the 3000 yeah, things exactly. that are on the shelf that you're going <laughs> to have to compete with. Buddy. My, yeah. Both my parents, especially my mom was like, look at these, there's a hundreds of these, like, how are you going to yeah. compete? And, um, you know, I think it, it is tough. Right. And, and especially, you know, you spend uh, most of your career working in a different industry. And I know my co-founder, he was actually uh, most recently a lead product manager over at Facebook, obviously yeah. also very secure. Oh, but, yeah. but both of us really were itching, um, you know, to do something else. And, and a lot of this, you know, people always ask, you know, how, why did you do this? You, you weren't chefs, you weren't nutritionists, you weren't food scientists. But we did have a very strong personal mission going into this because both of our families, as we've gotten older, um, we've seen that they've really suffered through chronic health conditions. So my grandmother's pre-diabetic and both my parents have taken medication for uh, high blood pressure for over a decade. And same thing on you know, Kei Chan's family's side. Uh, we both have just seen uh, too many instances of this happening, not just in our communities or families, but people around the world. And so right. when we started thinking about you know, what, what kind of food product we want to work on, um, naturally, we start to gravitate towards these Asian foods that we grew up loving and eating and trying to figure out, well, how do we reinvent these foods we love, but with better nutrition, better quality ingredients and instant ramen kind of, you know, it, it came into the picture just because we happened to already share that friendship over a bowl of noodles. And, yeah. uh, you know, people are always like, did you guys do all this market research? You know, you guys came from the tech world. You must have like dug through the data. And the truth is, is we did none of that. Um, right. Keijian actually came over to my place one day. We were talking about like wanting to work on a better for you food brand. And we were like, well, let's just reinvent noodles. Like we, you know, it's like <laughs> something we both love eating. We know it's, you know, we know a lot of people love eating it, but yeah. it doesn't have, you know, a lot of the, the elements of, of the nutrition that we personally happen to care about. And we knew were good for diabetics and people with high blood pressure. And so 
really that's how we fell into it. And I think all this information around like it's a $46 billion market or there's mm-hmm. like it's a sleepy industry. We kind of backed into that after the fact yeah. um, you know, for the story, yeah. really. I totally relate to that. I mean, mine was definitely, you know, this was what my students at the cooking school wanted. And then I was like, holy mackerel, like condiments alone is an $8 billion industry. And that Massive. doesn't count sauces and marinades and, you know, dressings. Um, but so, you know, I'm picturing, first of all, one of the things that really comes out as, you know, I did my research and I was reading was just the friendship that you and, you know, Kevin have. Um, I love the emphasis on your friendship coming first. I love the emphasis on being eyes wide open that partnerships can be taxing, that this is, you know, but that you weren't going to let it, you know, crack the shell around the two of you. Um, And I want to hear more a little bit about that later. But what I want to hear about right now is, you know, that first conversation was, okay, let's do it. Then what? Like, how did you, what were the next steps? What was like, all right, today's Monday, and I'm gonna go do this, and you're gonna go do that. Like, do you have, I mean, forgive me, I don't know a lot about what game creators do oh, that's or okay. people, yeah, you know yeah. any of that but yeah. are you guys do you have different sort of like were you like I'm going to take care of the formulation and you're going to take care of the you know yeah you know how did you start that's a great question we so I think when Kitchen and I first started this business it's funny you talk about the friendship when we were working at Kabam together as co-workers, you know, I, he was actually there about a year before I joined. And I remember when I joined, we actually did not really like each other that much. And it's mm, kind of I've funny. Heard that. I mean, I hear that <laughs> a lot with very good friendships. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I will segue out of this soon. I know you wanted to focus on the other question, but. No, no, I like um, this part. <laughs> I think it, it's funny because now looking back in hindsight, I think the reason we didn't enjoy, or we just didn't like each other was because we had such opposite working styles. Um, K-Chan is very much a deep thinker, um, a little bit more, he's not introverted per se, but he likes to work in a silo and just think from first principles and try to dig into the problem himself. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's more like a researcher, analytic, he's Mm -hmm. very analytical. And I'm definitely, uh, I would say more of the social butterfly. My tendency (laughs) when it came to solving problems was, Hey, who can, you know, who are the experts? Who are the people Mm -hmm. who've been through this before, who I can tap into it for advice? And then based on that advice, can I then carve my own path um, forward? And so when we were working together at Kabam, every time we faced some sort of problem, we happened to work on the same team together. We both just immediately went opposite paths where he'd hunker down in front of the computer and just work for hours. And I would go seeking out leadership in the company, you know, mm-hmm. ask them about things they've tried in the past. And we came together, he, you know, he'd always say, gosh, like, Kaylee, why are you not just doing the work? And I'd always say, K-Chan, why are you working in, in a silo? What if you right. spend all this time? And it's not that like, you know, we already went down the path before, but that ended up being so complimentary because it's so perfect. Yeah. You know, I think when we started gaming together, we realized, Hey, we do have complementary skill sets where I tend to go gather the resources and KHN, t- you know, figures out how to maximize those resources mm-hmm. internally. And that was a beautiful partnership where going back to your original question, I think in the early days, a lot of it really was me kind of coming from this, uh, I had, you know, after working with him in product management, I went into the early stage venture capital route and I just happened to have a much larger network of food founders and investors who we could tap into for advice. And so mm-hmm. I was able to just gather some of the resources I think we needed. And K-Chan was busy reading the research papers and <laughs> both of us did the formulation all the way up until that 200 recipes figure you mentioned. It was both of us <laughs> in our kitchens yeah. trying a god like ungodly amount of noodles i'm just Um, picturing the two of you like with a noodle machine literally with a pasta machine it wasn't even like anything special and uh yeah we tried every kind of noodle under the sun and at a certain point we did we did start to specialize where you know i think he ended up taking a little bit more of the product development capabilities and and i started focusing more on sales and marketing and kind of Mm -hmm. building the demand but uh, one thing I do want to kind of back up. So for anyone listening who's, who's thinking about starting their food business, I think one benefit that Cajun and I, had, and I had coming from the tech industry, and especially in mobile gaming, is you're taught to de-risk 
pretty quickly and do things in a phased process. Um, so you launch little by little, you de-risk along the way, and then um, versus I think a lot of founders tend to again build it, build in you know the, the darkness and the quiet in their basement for you know two years and they come out and then they realize like hey where are, you know where are all the customers why are, why isn't the demand coming um, why don't people care about my product and I think that's something that was really beaten out of us as product managers so before we even started any of the R and D. Both Kation and I did a lot of qualitative and quantitative research. We actually built, you know, our own landing pages where we had friends do mock-up designs. Um, we, you know, had the value. Pro- we had hypotheses around which value props we thought people would care about, and obviously, we had core critical value props that we ourselves cared about, like low carb for diabetics, so on and so forth. Yeah, right. but which were the things that Correct. really resonated? Exactly. Yeah, that's which so ones great. Which we should be so. We had these landing pages and luckily, I think because K-Chan had come from Facebook, he also had some leftover ad credits, not a lot, but, you know, let's say like $800 worth and um, which actually could be a lot for, for many people. Um, mm-hmm. And so we were able to demand test and we collected pre-orders. Um, back then, there was a tool you could use called Celery. You could collect pre-orders. It would hold their money in escrow and we would email people who had pre-ordered and we'd say, hey, just curious, you know, why did you order? And they would give us this, that, that would give us the qualitative answers around, you know, yep. what were their, their triggers for thinking about a product like this? When did they start thinking about this? Uh, you know, what options have they considered in the, in the past? And then, you know, the, the money question was really like, hey, FYI, we're, this product is not going to be built for another year or two. Do you want a refund? Right. And 50% of the people said, no, keep my money. And that's when we knew, holy crap. You know, pairing that with obviously all that conversion data and things we were looking at from a metric standpoint, but qualitatively, the fact that people were willing to let us hold onto their money for a year or two years because there was a hair on fire problem for them, that really signaled, hey, there is demand for this type of product. Um, and we obviously had a price point. So it was, we knew it was going mm-hmm. to be a premium, better, you know, price point in the, in the early days. Yep. And I think it was kind of that combination of data that, again, gave us the signal, it gave us direction. So we wouldn't, worry too much about building the silo and not coming out the other end, knowing that this was going to work. And is there something, is there, I mean, I love, I, you know, again, this is what I love is when people take, they map lessons from other things onto other things. It's like this cross disciplinary way of building that I think is so interesting. I like doing it with sort of like agroecology and sustainability Mm. and like agriculture and layering it onto business, which is, you know, you know, interesting, I think too, but this is really, really cool. So is there something like this sort of like de-risking, um, you know, building in phases, like what is that called something? Is there like, a I don't Uh. know. You look into that somewhere. <laughs> I think, I think it ends up being a combination of product management and perhaps even just traditional growth, growth marketing. Um, mm-hmm. Which Kate and I didn't have a background in marketing at all. But when you're a product manager at a mobile gaming company, you have so much data, and you know the the iteration cycles, the feedback loops are so fast. You're launching features yeah. almost every single week, and it, it really kind of yeah. hammers in that experiment velocity mindset. And then I think the product management piece is really where you learn how to do proper user research, how not to ask leading questions, how to structure mm-hmm. the surveys, um, all of which would came in super handy. And I will talk about this later in the podcast around how we built community along the way as yeah, well. Yeah, that's going to be a big one. So I was going to ask you this later in the podcast, but I think since you mentioned it, I want to cover it now. I would imagine that, you know, going from a product that is, you know, transferable in air, you know, being able to iterate, being able to change things up, being able to, you know, that minimum viable product and, and, you know, that feedback loop that you're talking about, it's different when you're dealing with, you know, ingredients and labor and trucks and, you know, stuff. Um, have you found it? Um, are you surprised at the challenges of like moving a product that is, you know, a packaged good versus like a tech product? Is it fun for you to be moving something that's tangible? <laughs> like what are the sort of pros and cons I think for you what going, you know, cause yeah. some of it applies, but some of it is very, very hard to totally. apply. 
Right. I, yeah. And I think it's funny because I think the grass is always greener where, you know, when we were in the tech industry, we often lamented that we couldn't tangibly touch the products we were working on. And, mm-hmm. you know, these weren't things that we could share with someone that they could consume or touch or feel. And, you know, you, you couldn't just hop into an Uber driver, you know, car and talk to your Uber driver about what you did and have them, you know, understand exactly what right. you were doing. And right. there was all these elements that we, we'd been missing really. And, you know, and again, we were, we were in the tech and digital for 10 years to a point where you get kind of jaded, right? It's like, you're working on these products. They're not necessarily bringing people together. In fact, mm. arguably they're bringing people further and further apart and more lonely. And so I think in all of those elements, we we really wanted to get over to the physical product and you know, CPG or food and beverage side of the world. And then, of course, you know, now that we're here, of course, there's always going to be the grass is greener elements. <laughs> I'm sure you know this. All Why the time. does it take nine months to make <laughs> exactly. a new flavor? Like what exactly. the heck? Yeah, those are yeah. those are the most painful moments. And of course, freight and everything we're dealing with, inflation. Yeah, it's, it's all in the mix. But uh, you know, I think for Cajun and I. It, it, these are just challenges that are waiting to be solved. And I think a lot of people will say like, oh, that sounds super painful. But for us, we grew up, again, like we grew up, <laughs> yes, we grew up in, yeah, right. in food families, but we also grew up, um, I'm going to, this is going to sound like a tangent, but we actually grew up playing a lot of games. Um, when we right. <laughs> when we were first generation immigrants here in America and you know, my parents didn't know English and a lot of times me and my co-founder, all we had was the way we could, we were able to build friendships quickly in America was we, we play these online games and you meet these strangers and, and in online games, you, you actually learn pretty quickly how to solve problems. And, you know, every challenge is like you're leveling up and you're just facing a new problem. And so I think a lot of times what I've seen is the most successful founders um, in general, they treat business like a game. And mm-hmm. I know that's that can be insensitive to say because there's so much at risk, so much at play, but it's more of this mindset of, hey, you know, we are playing this game. It's fun. And if we treat each yep. challenge as a fun opportunity waiting to be solved, it's not so bad, at least if you can reframe it optimistically like that. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's actually yeah. a really, I think it's it's the way that really high-performing athletes, you know, when when they, because when you treat it like a game, a, it doesn't crush you <laughs> yes, <laughs> because you know that there's a next role or, you know, there's a next move. And you know that if you go three steps back, your next card that you pick could take you 10 steps forward. Exactly. And, and so there's like a little bit of, um, I don't know, it makes it a little more fun. Obviously it desensitizes it a little bit. I think you, I think you know that there's a tomorrow for the most part. Um, I think, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Um, and, and speaking of that, (laughs) um, from what I've read after 200 recipes, you came out with something and it wasn't necessarily a smashing success. Oh, it's far worse than that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for for anyone listening who, who has tried the first version of Emmy, I I think, you know, I want to speak for myself and my co-founder. We want to apologize if you didn't have the best (laughs) experience there. Um, You know, when, when we started Emmy, we, we obviously, we had this vision for what Emmy could taste like and smell like and all these things. And, you know, we had grown up eating the the best instant ramen, you know, in the world, we, we've eaten every single brand and our families, when they came here, it was really the only thing we could afford. Most of our family vacations were, you know, driving to Yosemite and eating instant ramen out of the car um, or mm-hmm. in hotels. And so it's funny when we, when we started working on Emmy, it, we, again, we had this vision and we, it, we had to learn the hard way that executing against that ultimate golden standard is very difficult in CPG. You're dealing with manufacturing constraints, um, when we launched, we were trying to manufacture in Taiwan initially, and we faced all sorts of hurdles. Um, for example, the Taiwan FDA blocked one of our core ingredients at the time, and they burned all of the inventory we had shipped oh, over. Um, wow. And then right after that, when we were when we thought we could reformulate, then COVID started and the borders shut down, and so we had to restart our manufacturing process from scratch and find a manufacturer in the U.S. who, frankly, just had zero instant ramen uh, manufacturing experience. They right. were. You know, they were used to making fresh noodles and the way that they were going to make our instant ramen was they had to actually go through this process called acidification, which mm-hmm. imparted this nasty, bitter, acidic taste to everything. So right. it just wasn't optimal. But again, this kind of goes back to the importance of, I think, the demand testing piece and also why you want to build community along the way is 
we knew from our demand testing, we knew from some of our community building efforts that there were pockets of customer bases in America, specific personas who, again, this was a hair on fire problem. And, you know, if I had to be explicit about it, for example, there were diabetics, there were people on low carb lifestyles, there were people on ketogenic lifestyles, people who just could not eat any other kind of noodles or ramen period. And when we did, you know, the taste testing for version for the first version, um, we tested amongst those those user groups, of course, amongst everyone else as well. Um, And we used our, our community to do that. And when we had tested above a certain threshold of a score with just those focused you know, personas, we realized, hey, this is good enough for them. This is it's never a going to viable make, product. It's a right? viable product. And we are, of course, embarrassed. But, you know, you, you have to be embarrassed of your first version sometimes. And look, it's for anyone it's listening, it is case. tough. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough in food and beverage because often you don't get second chances with food and beverage. People have very visceral reactions to their smell or taste of something. And it's very right. hard to win people back. But... In the grand scheme of, you know, the 300 million Americans, we knew, hey, at least we know there's these core audiences that we can try to focus our marketing efforts on. For anyone else who discovers us, you know, that was very unfortunate. There was nothing we could do to control that. But let's go heads down. Let's launch. Let's collect data. And let's just in parallel, let's work as hard as we can to get that second version of MEL as soon as we can. And so it was a brutal nine months. Um, I was the one who uh, was manning the CX at the time. Yeah, yeah, and that's fun. Um, you know, it was mm-hmm. never fun and very, very tough on my mental health. Um, I had many sessions and rants and just, it, it was a very rough time for me personally, but I think we came out of it much stronger and we're very, very happy with the product today. So yeah, that's kind of the story. All right. We're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we're going to like talk more about this community thing because you are on to something pretty awesome. So we'll be right back. I'm Louisa Kasdan, host of Let's Talk About Food. I recently hosted an exciting live podcast event in Boston and interviewed incredible women entrepreneurs who have received small business coaching from the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program. When I was applying to law school and I got in, I said, you know what? I'm still young. Let me pivot and go into the food industry and really follow my passion. I was kind of scared. It was a new thing to me. It was like, hey, I don't want me in the newspaper. I just want to be in my room, in my house. (laughs) So that was when I'm like, okay, now that I'm in the local newspaper, I better not disappoint the people that, you know, that have this belief in me. And on the days that you're tired or you feel defeated, just keep going. And 10 people might tell you no, but that doesn't mean that's your end result. You just have to keep going. Hear their stories on Let's Talk About Food, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream for supporting this episode. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing. I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org/donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. I'm back with Kevin Lee, co-founder of IMI. Okay, so first of all, you know, before the break, you were saying that, you know, you knew that you launched for something that was going to have to be improved upon, but that you made the conscious decision to do that because it was going to help you gather the data that you needed and you wanted to get something out into the world. And you kind of threw yourself in front of the bus a little bit to do that because you were the person absorbing 
all of the angry, I would imagine, emails and everything. So I don't, I don't want to gloss over that. Um, how did you handle that? Because I think, you know, founders in general, you know, it's, it's almost like everyone you go in front of, you're doing a bit of a tap dance and everyone is a stakeholder. And I remember my kids being at some point like, well, it must be, you know, something about like owning your own company. And I'm like, I report to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Like I, everyone, I'm, I'm accountable to everyone. Um, you know, not to sort of make it like, wah, wah, but it is challenging. So what did you do specifically because yeah. you can't be like, listen, we just wanted to get something else so that we could get data. We know it's not perfect. Of course. Like, so how did you a handle them, but b handled yourself? Yeah, and I think that's that's absolutely the right point. There, it, and to, you know, it was never in our attention to to say like, hey, we're launching, and hey, everyone who bought version one, hey, you, you're just a data point. That is far, the furthest from what we wanted. Right. And in fact, we shut down almost all of our marketing dollars for those nine months um, just to ensure we wouldn't get this product into people who weren't, who lived outside of those core user groups we had identified mm -hmm. as hair and fire problem. Um, the, the first thing I think that we, we did really well was we had this community and people often hear community. What is that? Is that an email list? Yeah. No, I, I just want to emphasize. So, so when my co-founder and I um, were in the tech industry, we both um, were managing communities for our entire career. Um, I had previously built the world's first and largest um, online community for product managers around the world. Um, my co-founder, he went, you know, he, when he was at a health tech company, he was effectively building healthcare products for communities. And then later at, at Facebook, he was helping influencers. Uh, he was building products to help them manage like their audiences and their communities. So for us, we knew that a community was not a, you know, it's not like a company to audience conversation. It's not an mm -hmm. audience company. It's a three-way conversation where, you know, it's us to them, them to us and them amongst each other. And so we, decided to build our community actually on a private Facebook group because during our demand testing, we realized that at least initially, a lot of our core audience was this 35 plus female who from our mobile gaming days, we actually knew that that audience lived primarily on Facebook. And so we kind of tried mm -hmm. to meet our community where they were. We don't want to take them out of their regular routines and platforms. And this Facebook group ended up growing organically, um, you know, at least in our pre-launch phase, it grew to around 3,800 members, just all people, word of mouth. Um, people who heard about our product. And it was in that community where we were super vulnerable with the entire journey, where we told everyone, hey, you know, we're launching this first version, but we want to give you a heads up of all the tribulations we've been through. And here's what we know about like where it's going to fall short in terms of taste, where it's going to fall short in terms of texture. And then we walked them through. We said, hey, like let's like let us collect feedback from you all on what you want improved. We prioritized all of that feedback. We gave routine updates around how we were going to change the product. And what happened was the community just, they kind of rallied behind us to a point mm -hmm. where even when, you know, after we launched this first version, they were in the Facebook comments and Instagram comments, like debating with people, helping to mm -hmm. tell people, hey, FY, you know, we've known the Kevin since the beginning of this journey and they have, a, you know, they've promised to make this product better and they are going to, we believe them. And when you have hundreds of these types of people, these evangelists who are, you know, rallying behind you, showing their support, and you also don't want to let them down, it really motivates us to work even harder. Um, and I think that was really that community management and kind of helping us manage our reputation online. Um, the other thing, too, is for anyone who, um, you know, especially after we launched the new version, anyone who ever emailed us and said, hey, I want a refund from the first version, uh, we gave 100% refunds on on any mm -hmm. you know, any request. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was imperative for us that people felt like we had done right by them, and we weren't trying to just like again use them as you know a way to get to the next version. That again was right. not at all the intention. Did you keep their emails and then send them the new version? Yeah, we have we have a whole list of everyone who's complained, and we proactively even reached out to a couple of our biggest detractors, um, and we said, hey, just want to let you know, we even you haven't asked for it, but we've shipped you a free variety pack of the new version. We don't expect nice. anything. This is really just to, you know, say sorry for that, for the, your for poor first experience. And actually many of these detractors, I think there were, I can, off the top of my head, I can think of two specific instances. One, one lady was such a detractor that she would, for months at a time, she would go on every single one of our Facebook and Instagram ads and she would comment oh and my goodness, reply to other people. Yeah. And 
she tried her new version and she sent me this long email apologizing and saying how she was so impressed with like the work and yeah. it was, it's just the best feeling to be able to help convert these people and I, I think for anyone listening I always tell people like sometimes it's better to have you know a few a few you know people who love your brand a few people who hate it you you kind of want the polar opposites because the people who hate it they were so passionate they had an expectation that your brand just didn't match and because they didn't you didn't match the expectation they became they somehow became a detractor but they're still passionate enough where they're out there fighting against you. Right. And it's only a matter of time before you meet their, you meet their expectation. They swing back over to the other side. Yeah. When we had the cooking school, you know, we had a, we had a cafe in front and it was almost like we did turn it into a game because whoever took the time to like lodge a complaint that there weren't enough cherries in the scone that morning was like a prime person to be an evangelist for the cafe. Right. Totally. Like if, if this person cares enough or has enough time, right, to 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 spend focused on this or, you know, and and usually it was, you know, not really about the number of cranberries in the scone or whatever it was. Right. It's always kind of about something else. But, you know, converting those, you know, and that's why I think, you know, when we had like Ellie Weiss on here, who was at Ollie Pop and is now at Jones Road, you know, he always talks about CX as a marketing channel. Totally. It's not mitigation, right? It's marketing. It's an opportunity to take someone who who has your who's engaged right. and just like flip their engagement. It's it's such a I mean, that one is almost like check, 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 check. You know, <laughs> like got this guy, got that guy. Um, and I mean, you know, I do think, you know, the word community, there are all these words, they all get overused. First, it was disruption. You know, there's like all these words, right? Community is one of them for sure. Um, but you're talking about a real fledging community. community. And, and I think, you know, what you said is really cool. It's like you to them, them to you, and perhaps the most important part is them to each other um, and figuring out where that is. You know, you guys were, had the experience and sort of the understanding to know that this Facebook sort of Venn diagram of who's on Facebook and who was looking for you matched up, you know, Yeah, I think, yeah. Tell me more. I, well, I was going to actually emphasize that point because I, I, I hear so often these founders struggling with this, you know, paralysis from analysis of where do I start my community platform? Should I go mm -hmm. with the hot platforms like Discord or Circle.so? And there's, I, I could list hundreds of That's these That's so hot. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, again, it's so important just to, to meet your community members where they already live. I think, you know, you don't, you don't want these, someone to have to figure out how to log into a Discord and, you know, right. they're not naturally using that just doesn't make any sense. So don't, yeah, don't go for yeah. sexy, go for where they're going to live. And I think also, you know, I think there's been a little shift, you know, in the last couple of years, the sort of the emphasis has been on like, bring them into your world, into Emmy world, into Haven's Kitchen world, like into our world, right? Like, And I mean, Courtney, you know, our brand director has always been like, we don't need to bring them into yeah. our world. We just need to like go to their world and right. be like, Hey, there's this thing totally. that's good. Right. Like we're not trying to build, you know, unless you are, you know, like a, a, a new, a new channel, exactly. right? Like you're just, you need to have a place where they can go and they can see what you have. And in our case, like the recipes are very critical for us because, you know, people need to know what to do with this stuff and, you know, all of that. But I, I think that that's, you know, you went to where they were, you communicated with them, you were honest, which I think is a big thing. Are you on other channels now? Like, I know you're on Instagram because you actually have a lot of Instagram followers considering that you just started. Yeah, we, um, you know, I, I attribute a lot of that to our creative team who, you know, just, they put out amazing recipe videos and different creative random ways of, of using ramen. Like they, mm -hmm. they do like ramen spring rolls and all these interesting recipes. Um, we don't live, our communities first and foremost, will still live on, on, in that Facebook group, just because again, mm -hmm. that's still where a lot of our core audience lives. Um, it's since grown to around, I think it's around 5,200 members and it's still very active. Um, you know, it always makes me happy to see people joining for the first time and, 
they make a po- their first post and then other you know veteran members come in and help answer questions and it's just it's such nice dialogue uh, my dream is to be able to host in person events to let them, you know all across the mm-hmm. US and have them meet each other um, but you know i think that yeah i think for for us we'll probably just live there for quite a while i don't know if we'll move off can't, can't think of an instance yeah no i mean I, I but you know there's also you have uh, I mean, from my understanding, like what I was reading is that, so you, you know, you basically went back to the drawing board, you got this recipe back together, you were ready to relaunch, but you didn't just do it crazy big. You did sort of this, this step thing that you described before where you had a, you know, password protection yeah. and the beta community and, you know, you did that in phases two. Um, and it seems like that was sort of twofold. One is you were, you know, you have a very large email list for a relatively young brand, you know, in like above 30,000 is big for a brand your size, especially when, you know, mm-hmm. you weren't really doing, I would imagine that much content at the time. Um, is that, Right? Yeah, I think we're we may I haven't not checked recently. We may be closer to the to like the ninety thousand to hundred thousand at this point, which has been pretty awesome. Um, yeah, it's I mean that's quickly. that's huge. Um, you know, and just just from a you know, I love email. If you listen to this podcast, you know I love email. I just love that we own it. It's ours. We can, you know, we can actually be helpful there as opposed to trying to be selling there. Um, which is why I like it so much. It's like truly educational, which I appreciate. Um, but tell me about sort of like the password protected and then sort of allowing people to try it in phases and, you know, how, because I, this seems to be sort of the common theme and I guess it comes from your, from your gaming background. Yeah. The, the password protection really was a way to actually reward our community first because our community really is our group of evangelists. They've been there. Um, some of those members have been there literally since Kitchen and I, this was kind of an idea. We we sat on a couch and recorded our first video and we posted it to the community like two and a half years ago. Um, and that community has given us so much feedback. You know, we, we do share a lot of behind the scenes, but occasionally, you know, we'll We'll post a, a photo of like, you know, the first designs we were drafting for the packaging and we got feedback or we do a lot of flavor surveys to gauge what flavors people care the most about. And every time we had like a major iteration of the product, we would do this pre-survey to help qualify members of the community. And we'd actually send out you know, like, let's say, 100 to 200 samples all across the nation. And we'd collect a lot of feedback quantitatively and qualitatively. And these are things that normally if you run these with a third party group, you'd pay, you know, north of mm-hmm. $10,000, $20,000. Yeah, um, but sure. we're doing this for you know pennies um, just because our community right. members are so passionate about it. And when we, you know, I think first launched, we, we wanted to again, reward the community members. And so we spent a month where we just put it on a password protection. We said only if you're in this community and, you know, maybe with your close friends and family, but we told people not to share it widely. And um, that was, that's why we did that. And then in terms of the phases, so going back to, um, again, how we, how we think about like iterating, you know, most food brands, the traditional way was, you know, you create a formulation, you give it to 20 uh, friends and family members or strangers in the street, or you do a couple of demos, and that's kind of the, the sample size you have to determine, hey, is this product good enough? And right. I, I kind of tease this already, but because we had this community of thousands of members, each time we wanted to test a formulation, um, we did this pre-survey. And the purpose of the pre-survey, we learned from our product management days, is you do want to qualify that that sample size to ensure there aren't outliers. And um, we actually did ask for things like demographic, psychographic, mm-hmm. eating habits. And it allowed us to, again, in a non-biased way, create a sample group that was that we felt was representative of the U.S. population right. um, across different geos and, again, like, lifestyles and socioeconomic backgrounds. And we thought that that would give us a much more accurate representation. So when we were able to collect feedback quantitatively, we would we would actually have them rate the product on multiple dimensions. Mm-hmm. Things like you know, slurpability to terms mm-hmm. we came up with. Um, I like slurpability. slurpability or yeah. like, you know, how do they feel about the salt levels? 
And so we had a very rich data set from each iteration where we could confidently say like, hey, on this dimension, you know, we're getting the, you know, the 4.5 out of the 5 or we're getting 3 here. And so it allowed us to um, very quickly iterate on the product. But it also, I think, just allowed the community members to truly feel like they were part of building this alongside us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember I had Amanda Hesser on from Food 52, I don't know, before the pandemic because we were in person. But, you know, that they fully, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you like everyone collaborate, you know, all mm-hmm. of the all of the people basically help you come out with the product. Uh, I forget what the term is. Everyone will DM me when they listen to this. But, you know, basically they had, you know, I whatever it was, it was like 16 million people on Food 52. Wow. And they were like, what do you want from a cutting board that you're not getting? Oh, wow. And, you know, crowdsource, crowdsource, yes, crowdsource. crowdsource. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think especially these days, people... They don't. They don't just want to be sold to. They want to be a part of what's happening. And they and so the combination of like being in that community, hearing from you, seeing the vulnerability, getting to weigh in on their opinions about everything from slurpability to you know thickness to you know color, right? Like people like to be a part of stuff, and they there is a pride of ownership in there too. And there's definitely, I mean. I think we all know at this point when people feel like they've invested their time and energy into something, they are more likely to feel an attachment to that thing and to tell other people about it. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, I can, you know, it's like there are so many benefits to doing it this way. It's really, it's really great. And I think you, you guys figuring out how to get this thing going, because I do think a lot of people are like, we have all these followers on Instagram. That's our community. We have all these subscribers, you know, that's our community, but it's different, yes. right? And so you took the time to really nurture it, but you also knew how to build it in a way that I think a lot of people will be very excited to learn. About. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, you summarized it so well there. Oh my gosh, got to repeat that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think the the time it took to nurture, it is, a, it is very time intensive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's, when you have hundreds of comments that you have to respond to and I respond to every single comment um, in there. It, it does take a lot of time, but it does pay you know pay itself back in dividends when that community goes out to support you. I remember our first month of launch, um, our community at the time was I think around 3,800 members and our email list at the time, it was around 35,000. This is pre-launch days. And the, the community ended up driving 40% of overall sales revenue for that mm-hmm. first month, despite being only a tenth of the size of the, you know, around a tenth of the size of the email list. And so it's like you said, these people were emotionally bought in and they were mm-hmm. much more likely to convert because they had been following the journey. They had put time into it. And even when, for example, we launched uh, retail, so we launched in Whole Foods about three and a half months ago and our community just went like ballistic. They right. literally, they would post photos every other day where someone would go in and say, Hey, I just bought out the entire shelf. Yeah. Or like this one lady said, I went in this location and I took the retail ready, like the display case. And I bought all the product. And I bought the display. I asked the cashier <laughs> if I could keep the display case um, right. and it was nuts. And then like we saw from our velocities, just shoot out the gate and you know we're above, right. we're above the category average in three and a half months with no Trades right. no promos and it keeps growing because our community keeps going out to support us any chance they can get. Yeah. And that's just that's why I would emphasize community because that time you're putting in, it's it is an investment, but yeah, it will it will help so much. And uh the fresh market is another example where we recently pitched the fresh market. Um, but you know, I made a post in the community. I said, Hey, everyone, curious. Uh-huh. You know, I just moved to New York, so I've actually not experienced fresh market in my life. I've, I've been on the West Coast my entire life, but how many people here have heard of Fresh Market? Would you want us to get stocked in their locations? And we just got, you know, within less than, I think, 12 hours, we had like 75 people be like, yes, yes, like I love Fresh Market. And right. I was able to just take a screenshot of that and send that over to the Fresh Market buyer. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it probably helped move the needle because it yeah. helps de risk that there is going to be support for this brand there. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, I had um, Mike Gelb on a couple of weeks ago and you know, we were talking about brand love, you know, this idea of brand love. And 
how to quantify it, how to show it, how, you know, how to, how to build it, all of it. Right. Because that's at the end of the day, people are exhausted. They are scared. The world is terrifying. And for them to then be inundated with having to make choices around stuff, you know, for someone to take the time to commit to you and to your brand is really meaningful. And I think a lot of companies probably are busy trying to do the next thing and get the next, you know, get the next customer and they focus on awareness a little bit more than they focus on that sort of like building the depth, right? And so there is a place for, you know, the top of the funnel and there's a place for the bottom of the funnel and there's, you know, it's a place for awareness and there's a place for repeat. But at the end of the day, like you're more likely, if you can nurture these groups of people that really love you, they will do so much for you. And you'll be able to support them and make their lives better and easier. And it is beautiful. You know, I mean, it, I think for me, for someone who isn't necessarily naturally in this to like sell my face off, but really in it to like help people cook better. um, To me, it makes it a little less transactional, I guess. Yeah. And I remember reading about you talking about, you know, the triple bottom line and also the fact that, you know, your school, uh, when it was around, was there was the soul, right? It really was that yeah. soul that brought people in. And I think it's, that's what you're talking about, which I totally agree with. Yeah, because people can feel it, you know? And the thing is, like, they can, f- they can see right through all this stuff, you know? They know, they maybe not the first time, but the second time, you know? Okay, so a couple more questions before we go. So I know that in between... Um, you know, the tech job and, and starting this, you did, you mentioned that you were an investor. Um, and I guess you still are an investor, but not through the, the fund. And I guess one of my questions is, you know, I, I kind of know some of the answers, but I'm curious how you would think about like, how has sort of founding your own company and all of the stuff that comes with it impacted the way that you invest. Do you look back on any of the pre-IMI investment days and think like, I should have been a little bit more, or, or <laughs> I wish I had asked. Or, like, yeah. Um, I, I love that question. I think the first thing is, and I, I actually tweeted this um, like a couple months ago where I wrote, you know, now that the more I progress my founder journey, the more I look back at my VC days and I realized that I had no idea what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that as like a joke I and not satire. I truly feel that I had no idea what I was talking about. And, you know, the, it's not just the empathy and um, I mean, the empathy is a huge part of that, but it's, right. it's just everything, all the advice I was giving, it was not relevant, frankly. And mm-hmm. um, you ha- you really have to go through this experience of building something from the ground up um, to, to know like whether you are giving the right advice and what things you should be looking to invest in. And I think these days I I still keep the same perspective of, you know, I, I typically angel invest in very early stage founders. And, um, to me, it's usually just, Hey, you know, do I believe in this person? Because I think along Mm -hmm. the way, of course, the product may change their market. They may play in and may change, but you know, it's like they say it all angel, you believe in the person and they'll figure things out. So that, that hasn't really changed. I think, from a food and beverage standpoint, yes, from a tactical standpoint, I definitely will, you know, dig into just because I cover sales and marketing here at Emmy, I do tend to dig into how they think about their go to market, their marketing channel distribution, and, you know, how they will handle rising tax on every, you know, pay channel. And mm-hmm. um, I will dig into, you know, obviously into more margins now, just because we're, we're right. all dealing with what's going <laughs> on the margin side. And yeah. It does impact everything from cash conversion cycles onwards. And so, yeah. um, yes, I think that has changed. Um, but 
overall, it's, uh, and I do, I think I, I just, I, I probably am a lot more actually liberal about supporting other food and beverage founders uh, these days. And I just know how hard it is to, to start something from the ground up. So you might get a few emails. We have a lot of early stage people listening to this. Right. We just well, like, I, yeah, I am not, um, not very liquid for anyone listening. I, I cannot afford to do this. So please, I, I'm, please do not be offended if I can't do anything. Uh, but I, I try my yeah. best to help founders any way I can. Yes. No, I, I mean, I think you're going to be a huge resource to a lot of people, even just this recording, but I'm sure like in many ways, but, but speaking of that, you also, and I mean, I'm only saying this because I've read it. So it's public, like you do have a lot of really well-known investors um, who, who invested in you and in Emmy and a lot of people. And I, I mean, I was like, Ooh, because there's nothing better to me than a founder or an operator as an investor. Like I love them. Any founder that I can find anyone who's created a new category, anyone who, you know, has kind of like, like slogged through the muck. Um, I guess my question is like, there are a bunch of them. And at this stage, do you find yourself, um, are you talking to them all? regularly do you kind of have a quarterly call do you find that it's mostly you know they're helpful because their name is there they can make an introduction every once in a while like how do you sort of manage I guess um, this group of investors at this stage and I'll ask you specifically because I think that very early on we all get set up a little bit with monthly calls with a bunch of people or you know, um, maybe maybe setting up too much of a cadence early on, and then we end up having to back away, and then we feel kind of bad, and then you know there isn't so much governance at this stage, so it's not like a have to, but it's kind of a relationship builder. And I guess I'm just curious because you seem organized about a lot. Of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I would say we do maintain a, a, a real, an excellent relationship with, with all, or we try our best to with all of our investors. Um, we, we definitely did over index on taking a lot more founder and executive angels. Like you mentioned, uh, I think across both rounds, we have probably like 40 or 50 um, of these types of founder angel operators and people said, wow, that's, that's a lot to manage. But truth is, is, you know, I think everyone, a lot of them are mostly busy running things, but, right. um, and I, I don't do any, you know, set monthly calls with any of our investors, um, even with our, you know, our board, our board members, um, we've kind of told her like, Hey, we would prefer not to have this regular cadence of board meetings. We are very responsible about sending monthly updates on the dot every single month have not missed any and we're always available if you want to request a call but you know right. just trust that usually in those investor updates you're going to have all the information you need about the business um, outside of that it really is just me tending to ping people here and there depending on their operational expertise can I dig in a little bit on that? Just um, because people do ask me this question a lot. And I think this, like you are a very, very good person to answer this in that monthly update. Is it just sort of like a sales overview, an ops overview, marketing, anything team? Any, is it kind of like what a lot of us do for quarterly updates? Like yeah. month to month can be a little bit like, Wah, 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 wah. you know it, i mean it's it, it it's, is a lot i yeah so there's there's actually two types of updates we do um we have a monthly update which you're right i think it it can be a lot to send out and i think at some point we'll have to grab have new information to some extent yeah, yeah. like it you know I, I do think because um our business was pretty operationally intensive given this this new product we were trying to invent from scratch and so usually our updates are structured as you know, we have highlights, lowlights, um, we have our uh, revenue and cash and bank, and then we jump into, usually it's product and ops first. So it's kind of a quick rundown of what's been going on with product iterations and on the operations side, what kind of supply chain improvements we're making. From there, we will jump into the sales and marketing piece. We start with our D2C marketing and we break down, uh, you know, ROAS by channel and the learnings right. that we've learned from each channel. Um, ideally, you want to be learning via experiments every month. So we'll kind of break that out. And then 
wholesale retail will also kind of give updates and velocities and things like that. And then right. we always, actually, one thing I missed at the very top is we do have, of course, our asks and how you can help at the very, very mm-hmm. top, just because investors don't have time to read sometimes. Um, yeah, then, I always do a little like, <laughs> if you've gotten this far, yes. you know, book, 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 like a little like Easter egg for them. And sometimes people are like, love that little thing, you know, and like the one out of the, you know, the 60 or whatever, <laughs> exactly. it, like read down to the bottom. It's, but, yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. We, we even did a little bit of user research with our investors and we realized that most of them will read the asks how you can help and then they'll skip straight down to the revenue and that's about it. Yeah, um, that's but great. That's okay. Yep. Um, and then the very last section we have is um, investor shout outs. So uh, we will individually call out any investor or advisor who we had spent time with, who had you know helped meaningfully with the business in the mm. past month. And we found it's it's a nice little, something we actually learned from our mobile gaming days. It's like, you, uh-huh. you always want a leaderboard. <laughs> it's the friendly wow. friendly competition does motivate people. And um, we have found that simply by listing someone's name and their contribution. Um, yep. It just incentivizes it the other them. guys. Yep. And it, there's definitely a little bit of peer pressure where other people mm-hmm. will then immediately respond and be like, hey, what can I do to help? So I think in terms wow. of keeping I the <laughs> investor base active and re-engaged, yep. that has helped quite a bit. And then we have the second update, which is possibly overkill for many people listening, but our team internally, each team member is responsible for, for submitting something called a HPM, which is a weekly email update for highlights, progress, and me. And this is a practice that we picked up from K-Chan's Facebook product management days where and also from our Kabam mobile gaming days where every week we were required to write an email update to that we would send to senior management and it would break down the, the highlights of the week, the lowlights and the progress we were making against um, projects related to our OKRs or our goals. Mm-hmm. And then me is just a short section that describes what you did that weekend. So it's a fun little like personal note. And um, it, it sounds like a lot of overhead, right, to have each team member down to our you know, CX lead and our designer all writing these HPMs. But A, I think what's important is that to note is we are a remote company. We don't all live in the same office. So it is important to allow people to see cross-functionally what other people are working on. Yeah, for sure. And two, it's, it's, um, it forces clarity of thought when it comes to a retrospective of the past week and whether the work you did was actually meaningful and high leverage. And Mm -hmm. then it forces the the person to also plan for the upcoming week because yep. as they're writing, if they're like, wait a second, this week was actually not that productive or I didn't focus on the right, you know, activities, then the next week will be a lot better. So yeah. Um, I'm a big fan. It's do you do it in Slack? We write these over uh, so team members, some team members will draft these in Notion. Um, all of them, all of these are public in Notion on this. Uh, we have a memos table that we keep for long form memos. So everyone right. has their own page and then but everyone's required to send it over email um, to our everyone alias and then um, we do keep some specific investors um, on those hpms we don't want to overload all of our investors but um, some who we were we are closest to or who are like very vertically specialized right Um, right like some of my marketing you know investors i'm closest to will get my weekly hpms and they can chime if they want they don't even have to read it Um, right but we, we do try to over-index on documentation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny because I went through this whole sort of thing where I was like trying not to be as, um, I tend to be, I like meetings. I know that's like heresy <laughs> right now. Um, I don't like meeting just for the sake of meeting, but I do like, I think I'm more like you in the sense that I like collaboration yeah. and I like shooting ideas around and I like wrestling things out a little bit. Um, So to me, making decisions, I do like to try to sit and, you know, collaborate. Yes. Collaborate. And I also like updates. And, um, you know, I went through a period where I was like, maybe I'm doing everything wrong and we should have no meetings and we should have no updates because, you know, that seems to be a thing now. And maybe I'm just old, but, you know, I think that, you know, or maybe that's just like my expressive personality imposing myself on the analytics in the group. But I do think to your point, you know, especially now where people are in all different places, it's very easy for ops to get siloed, you know, and and for marketing to have no idea what's going on in ops world, but they, they really do all, 
everything is, you know, interfunctional across functional. And I think if you're, you know, talking about building a culture of support and collaboration, it does, it is worth the time someone's going to put into a little weekly update so that their teammates can know where they are and what they're doing. And that, you know, everyone's sort of held accountable to each other. Um, yeah. I, I guess part yeah. of the question becomes as the team grows, how do those things morph? Yeah. You know, because then you're going to start to have, you know, <laughs> dozens of these. Yeah, exactly. I think it's funny that you mentioned the the collaboration piece because I'm I'm very similar to you in that I love getting in a room and hashing out ideas together. And mm-hmm. that's really where I, I feel my flow and my energy. And it took me a long time to so my co-founder used to get mad at me it goes back to us having completely (laughs) opposite working styles he Mm -hmm. he kind of had to remind me he said hey look Kaylee if you want to do these you call it a brainstorming meeting then really it's just you need to set like a guardrail or constraint or set the expectation that this meeting is specifically going to be for brainstorming versus you know having us come to this meeting you lay out a problem and then we spend this time trying to hash it out live Um, and he really pushed me in a different way where now you know we present i present a problem set we asynchronously try to come to a certain conclusion or different hypotheses around how we could solve it and then we then schedule a meeting where we right. come together and present our our asynchronous solutions and it it works really well especially for introverted team members where who who may not have you know the the propensity to speak up in these types of conversations so yeah. ha- finding that middle ground has been you know, long journey even for myself, but I'm I'm grateful partially that we are a remote company and that it, it kind of does force these best practices. Um, though I, you know, if you, I'm sure me and you hopped in the room, we could yeah. talk for ages. <laughs> Why don't you just come over and we whiteboard something? Yeah. I have a whiteboard. Oh, I, love, I it. love it. You know, I can do that all day. It's great. Good. Okay. We're both teachers in that way. I think. Yeah. I, I, I mean, used to teach a lot, so yeah. Yeah, and also learners, you know. Yes. And but I, I think your point about you know there are there are people who like to think a lot before they share an idea, and they don't like to do it in the room with a whiteboard and they don't necessarily like to do it with the founder. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have some, I have some progress to make, I think in that area. Um, but I just, you know, Kevin, honestly, this has been amazing. I, you know, whenever I'm listening to, to my guests talk, I'm basically trying to figure out like, what's the title? What's the title? Building on what? Building what? You know? Yeah. Um, I have a few ideas. Oh, amazing. I don't want it to be too techy. Okay. Yeah, no. And the community piece is incredible. And like, I'm so excited for you and thank you. Just excited, you know, to be a part of it in any way. And I appreciate um, that. yeah, thank it, you so much for coming on. No, thank you. It's been an honor to be on here and thanks so much for inviting me. Yay. And Armin, thank you for dealing with us, with thank me, you, with my uh, technical challenges as a human. Um, and uh, everyone listening, I really appreciate it. We're over 102,000 downloads. It's like we're over 1,000 downloads a week. Um, so it's really cool. Yeah, people are listening and I'm glad it's helping. And um, I know it's a little tough right now. And you know, Kevin and I will both whiteboard with you yes. whenever you want <laughs> and have your back. So um, definitely, you know, enjoy the ride. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.